Shaggy Cross Conversations, chatting all things dogs and running. Join me, Michelle. Me, Louise, as we chat to guests and experts about dogs and running, sometimes whilst we are out running. Welcome to this week's Canny Cross Conversations. This week we've got Hannah back talking this time about um, reactive dogs. So welcome Hannah to again to Canny Cross Conversations. For those of us that, or those of people that didn't uh, listen or haven't listened yet to the firework episode, could you just do a quick introduction of yourself again please? Yes, thank you for having me um, back again. Um, yeah, um, my name is Hannah Lyon. I'm a vet um, and a behaviourist, um, and I work with dogs who uh, have problems with, with other dogs. Um, I graduated from the Royal Vet College in 2003, which means I've been a vet for a scarily long time now. Um, I worked for quite a few years in general practice, um, and then I did the COPE diploma um, in 2005. Um, which uh, sort of gave me the introduction to, to behaviour. And then I've done, also done the um, Clinical Animal Behaviour Masters with Lincoln University. Um, and I now run my own uh, behaviour practice, working with dogs that have problems with other dogs. Oh, well, thanks for coming on, Hannah. That's interesting. You mentioned Lincoln University, because that's where I used to work. Oh, it's a great place. Department. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm amazed yeah. our paths haven't crossed before now, actually. <laughs> it's a small world, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Oh, come on, you two. So for the benefit of people who might not know, can you just explain the difference between a dog behaviourist and a dog trainer? Is there a difference? How, you know, what's the difference? Absolutely. I mean, one of the thing, really important things to remember in this country is that actually a dog behaviourist isn't a protected title, whereas, for example, a vet, you have to have a specific veterinary qualification and it's very regulated in law. Dog training and behaviour is a very unregulated um, area in, in this country. Um, and basically anyone can set themselves up either as a dog trainer or a dog behaviourist without any experience or, or qualifications. Um, so it's just something to, really important to remember. Um, but basically, sort of, sort of in, in some ways, the, the difference between the, the two and there is a lot of uh, sort of crossover. A lot of trainers will see behaviour cases and a lot of behaviourists also do, do training. But basically, if you think about it, sort of training tends to sort of dog trainers tend to deal with sort of puppies and kind of normal and in inverted commas, um, sort of older dogs. So it's, it's general sort of day to day sort of training. So recalls, jumping up, um, you know, sort of not coming back when called, reacting to the doorbell, that sort of thing. Whereas behaviourists ideally should have a deeper understanding of sort of dog emotions of sort of brain physiology of potential underlying medical conditions and they tend to then take on the more sort of serious cases particularly anything involving uh, aggressive behavior um, or if any medication or anything like that's needed then it tends to be more of a behaviorist uh, sort of remit um, and there are a few um, sort of uh, bodies of um, that people can, can join and be members of that show they've been through um, sort of a, a regulations sort of process um, for being either a trainer or, or a behaviorist um, and it's often ideal to have a combination of both experience and qualifications together. So that's really interesting. But how do you get people referred to you or do you get people referred to you? Do you, do you is it just word of mouth or does it come through vets or, or things like that? How does how does it work? Um, so from my point of view, I tend to get people from lots of different um, sort of places. So I tend, yeah, word of mouth tends to be a big one for me. People find my Facebook page. Um, I have branding on my car um, and people often sort of notice that. But I also have some local vets that, that refer regularly to me as well. Um, and one of the things ideally is that all people who are behaviourists, um, 
personally should uh, work with um, an owner's own vet um, and ideally should be referred by their their vets, even if they are approached initially and then are sent back to, to their vets, because it's really important to work with an, a dog's own vets um, in case there are any uh, medical um, issues uh, sort of underlying the, the behaviour problems. Um, Lincoln University did a, did a study uh, a few years ago and looked at the, the cases referred to their um, behaviour clinic, um, and they found that actually 23% of cases had an underlying medical condition. Um, and then when you looked at um, aggressive behaviour cases, cases involving uh, aggressive behaviour, it actually went up to 27%. Um, and that's actually one in four cases. Um, and these are cases that have been referred um, sort of by a vet. So, so there are often... Uh, medical sort of things underlying quite a lot of behaviour cases, particularly sort of pain and musculoskeletal um, sort of problems. So it's really, really important. Even though I'm a vet myself, I always insist on a veterinary referral from a from a client's own vet. Um, so even if they've approached me via a different avenue, I always yeah. send them back to their vets with a referral form and I always work alongside their vets just to check what's going on with the dog's history. Um, and likewise, if any medication is, is needed, then obviously it's always important to refer back to their vets um, and have the vets involved with the medication. Brilliant. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, I mean, you're going to ask a question. No, no, I was going to say it goes back a bit to the fireworks one when you, because that's the bit that's stuck with me is, you know, if, if someone's got, if a dog's got arthritis and stuff and, and that sort of thing. And that's, you know, the fireworks stuff that we talked about back in, you know, the beginning of um, November was was really important how, how dogs react, isn't it? That's the same sort of thing, you know, sort of through tension and, and, um, being frightened what sort of um dogs do you work at because we're we're sort of um when we can across we uh we deal we have a lot of reactive dogs and is that the type of dogs that you tend to work with uh, yes. So, so my practice is called dog mixed dog behavior practice. And basically it, it focuses um, just on dogs that have problems with, with other dogs um, so that they meet uh, sort of out on walks. And that can be for multiple reasons. And it's either that it's a dog that's fearful of other dogs. So they react in an aggressive way to try and keep other dogs away. Sometimes it can be young and exuberant dogs who want to go and greet every dog they see. And then they get frustrated when they can't. So it's, I cover sort of all aspects of, of sort of dog to dog um, so sort of re reactivity. Um, some of the dogs that I see also can be reactive to people. Um, and obviously every dog that you see has a, has an owner attached as, as well. So that's something that I also work with. But I specifically work with dogs that have problems with, with other dogs. Um, it's something I use my own dogs as sort of stooge dogs. So we're always looking at why um, the dogs are reacting, how they are, what's the emotion underlying it, what's the dog trying to achieve with the behaviour that it's showing. Um, and then we we try and sort of help change how the dog um, sort of is behaving. Both in the short term, we give owners sort of coping strategies of what to do when you meet a dog on a walk. Um, and then we also sort of help change the emotions of the, of the dog and teach them they don't have to behave in the way they're behaving to get the, the end goal that they're trying to achieve. Um, and it's working out, does that dog want to greet the other dog or does it actually want to keep it at a distance and, and this sort of thing so it's sort of teasing out the, the emotions behind them so that's the majority of the work that, that I do. Oh it's fascinating so is I'll get the canny cross question in here now because we're, we're obviously canny cross conversation mm -hmm. <laughs> is canny cross ever something you recommend for reactive dogs? Uh, it can be absolutely it depends on the individual dogs for some dogs actually being around other dogs at close proximity is just 
too much is sort of at certain stages um but certainly absolutely one of the really good things about canny cross is that actually the dogs have got a specific job to do they they know what they're doing they're doing something that they enjoy um it's something they've got an outlet for and one of the really useful things is that in canny cross when you're doing it sort of even in a social situation is that all the dogs are going in the same direction together um and dogs cope with that a lot better than head-to-head meetings a lot of dogs struggle with other dogs coming towards them because the distance just gets shorter and shorter and it doesn't matter what the other dog does the dog just keeps getting closer whereas in, in canny cross everybody's going in the same direction and then normally the dogs that you're canny crossing with also have their own job to do they've got their own you know s- s- sort of focus they're not trying to jump on the other dog's head and say hello and that kind of thing and so they're all just getting on with their job and you find you find that they've got that activity that they can do that just happens to be around other dogs so certainly for, for, for some reactive dogs in the right circumstances then yeah absolutely it can be a really good thing thing to do and it's a great way of exercising a dog that you perhaps can't trust um, to let off the lead in normal circumstances a lot of reactive dogs people can't let them off at the local park or over the fields in case they meet another dog but actually getting out there and running with your dog is a great way of sort of having that exercise and that outlet that's that's really interesting because yesterday i did a canny cross social run and only two of us turned up in the end because it's absolutely chucking it down but but aster who uh, give him a mention uh, is a reactive dog and he was brilliant with pickle and again i think i, I agree with you it's because we were running the same you know they were running side mm-hmm. by side at times no reaction at all um and and he was brilliant with with pickle um, I mean, she doesn't care about other dogs anyway, so it's probably she probably lets off a bit of that, you know, mm-hmm. vibe anyway. Yes. So. But as trainers and owners, what sort of things can we put in place to help, especially and again, sort of relating a little bit to Canny Cross? Um, sort of in terms of when you're doing the Canny Cross. Yeah, well, yeah I suppose the thing as a Canny Cross trainer that I find the hardest bit when you meet up for a social run, and Michelle, I don't know if you find that, is that you've got you know, if there's a big group of you, and that could be just six dogs, that first um, sort of five minutes is a complete nightmare. <laughs> um, with with over-exuberant dogs, with dogs that are scared, until we get running. And I suppose for me, it's knowing what to, to suggest and put in place there, as well as the owners knowing what to do. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly that management of those initial interactions are, yes, it's sort of really important. And I think one of the biggest things is that sort of awareness of sort of, sort of time and, and space and awareness of other of other dogs in the group. So the owners are aware which dogs are less comfortable with dogs than, than others. Often the best thing to do initially is when you're reaching sort of the initial location, if you can, perhaps get everybody out of the car humans wise first, leave the dogs temporarily in the car, um, just so that then you can brief everyone to say, right, get your kit on, you know, so, so of, and then potentially even get each dog out sort of, sort of one at a time or the ones that you know are fine perhaps get them out and almost start them off towards the way that you're going so that then actually those dogs are already looking away they're looking and if they're getting excited their excitement and their focus is away towards the trail rather than back towards the other dogs that are getting out of the car and then potentially you'd get perhaps you could do it one of two ways. If it's a new place for the reactive dog, you could potentially get them out of the car first before everybody else arrives, let them have a sniff around, let them see where they are, put them back in the car again, get the other dogs out and allow them to almost start off so that then the reactive dog can come out and it be following the dogs that are moving away from it. Um, so they've had that space and they've not got the dogs looking um, because sometimes particularly when you're initially sort of meeting up it's that eye contact for too long and that too close proximity that the reactive dogs can't cope with so it's either a case of giving them that but in a a massive distance or just set everybody else off and let the reactive dogs sort of catch up once they once they've started um i think yeah 
uh, no, that's that's really good. That's helped me anyway. <laughs> really good advice. Yeah, we and I think do a lot and just start walking first so that the dogs are travelling in the same direction. Yes, um, yeah. It's it's how you manage the stops though. You know, when you've got kind of a group of people and you tell them to wait at a particular place, and then when all the dogs catch up, there's another kind of yes. as they all start barking again. It's how yeah. might, how might we manage that better? Is yeah, I think it it is it is a tricky one, and certainly dogs that love to run, you know, they get frustrated when they stop and they don't want to rest and and, and this sort of thing. So I mean, there's there's sort of several things you can do. You could either sort of space is the biggest thing for for reactive dogs. That space of being able to get slightly away from the group and having that time to say, right, I can move away and I can come back when I'm ready and I move away. And it's what we do a lot in our sort of rehab group uh, sort of situations that we um, do. It's making sure that the dogs that need it have got that space so they learn they can move away when they need to and then it means they can come back and join the group if they if they want to and then they've got that option to move away often depending on the trails you're using and that sort of thing that's not always an an option um so i think in some ways it's perhaps not waiting sort of too long if you if you can or if you're doing sort of a, a rest perhaps keep walking rather than completely come to a standstill um also it's getting owners to be aware of their dogs and their eye contact and what they're looking at what tends to happen if dogs react to each other tends to be because they're looking at each other for too long um because dogs when they're worried have a tendency to look at the thing they're worried about but then what happens is dogs find eye contact quite intimidating and they can find it confrontational and so then they react um normally what a what a confident well-socialized dog would do would be have a little look and then break eye contact look away sniff the ground but a lot of dogs if they're worried they haven't got the confidence to turn away because as far as they know that other dog might come and bite them on the run so they have to keep looking at the other dog and then it makes the other dog go oh you're staring at me don't stare at me and then they kick off at each other so it's often getting owners to be aware of what's their dog looking at at that point and if they're staring at another dog just get them to call them away encourage them to sniff the ground um you know sort of and just move them away and often that can help sort of break that that tension um, obviously it's quite difficult when you're canny crossing because you don't want to be adding food into the equation because they're doing the exercise it's quite tricky because normally we would use sort of food rewards to encourage sniffing the ground to encourage the dogs to turn away and for, to reward them for doing that so it's a case of just verbally you know, sort of encouraging them and, and rewarding them. I think that goes goes as well when we're, we're organising our groups is to try and get the right levels of people running you know together so that you don't have to do that I know that, and I know that's hard and that's something we have to do but maybe that's that's sort of a way around it as well yeah absolutely and also being aware of sort of I think your group structure of what other dogs you've got around so perhaps having several reactive dogs together might be sort of too much whereas actually if you've got a reactive dog if you can put it in a group perhaps with dogs who aren't perhaps don't find canny cross quite as exciting or don't don't show how exciting they find canny cross you know you find some dogs that they're quiet as a mouse and they set off and they run like stink and they're absolutely fine and they don't scream and shout about it um and perhaps they are, are more suitable dogs for the reactive dogs to start with so that actually they just get on and they run and they're not interested in in, in anything else um and then have the group that's got the really hyper excitable dogs um perhaps don't add the reactive dogs to those sort of straight away and it's once they know their job and they understand group running and social running you can then perhaps add in more more excitable dogs and it's also making sure that 
if you've got reactive dogs in, in a group, that you're not taking risks with the other dogs in the group, because the last thing you want to do is then have your sort of non-reactive dogs have a bad experience with the reactive dogs. If you've got a dog that's quite sensitive, um, then it's, it's perhaps keeping that dog out of a group with the reactive dogs, just so that you're not you know, sort of putting that dog under unnecessary stresses as well. Um, so it just depends. So for example, one of my boys, uh, Hobson, he loves to canny cross. He couldn't give a monkeys about anything else going on in the world. Um, you could can across him with a reactive dog and he wouldn't give a monkeys whereas my girl is a little bit more sensitive and she would notice what's going going on and she certainly if you come across people you know sort of in the woods and stuff you can feel her back off the pull very slightly and she's thinking about where's this other dog going what are they doing so I would be less inclined to to um can cross her with a with a reactive dog than I would Hobson who doesn't care at, at all and it's certainly something when I because I use my own dogs as stooge dogs I'm quite aware of the effect being around those dogs has with with the dogs um, and again it's really useful that if you've got dogs that are regularly going out with reactive dogs um, for example your own as sort, sort of trainers it's making sure they also go out you know sort of more times than than not um, with dogs who aren't reactive just so that they're not getting that expectation of, oh, when I canny cross, this is what happens. And I see reactive dogs and, and that sort of thing. My, my dogs are very aware that when I work at the venue that I, that I work at, this is where they see the dogs that, that, are, that can be reactive. And this is where they're in kind of work mode. And then when they're out of, of that sort of environment, they're not expecting to, to see dogs like that, um, you know, sort of in the same kind of way. Yeah, and I think uh, I think it'd be interesting to see what your reaction is, Michelle, because Pickle is, as I said earlier, is an, a couldn't care less about other dogs. So actually, she's a really good one for reactive dogs to to run with. Because once she's running, she apart from pheasants or whatever, you know, she's, not, <laughs> she's not really bothered about other dogs. So actually, I don't, don't have any other problem. But and and Michelle, I want you because I know you've got a reactive dog. But I also have another quick question, um, and um how much responsibility well it is the responsibility of the owners but should they they should come to canny cross social runs with knowing how their dogs are going to react and how to deal with that really shouldn't they and then again michelle i don't know what you've had experience of um i mean i've i've had quite a few reactive dogs at my groups and we have exactly as you recommended hannah we've kind of kept them separate um and you know when we've stopped because you can hear them when they start barking that they've got that kind of anxious bark about them um, so they've kind of waited with their owners outside of the group while we've kind of got sorted. Um, so, I mean, in terms of Poppy, she runs great with other dogs. I don't have an issue with her. It's when she's out walking that she's mm -hmm. very reactive. Um, and it's really interesting hearing the reasons behind that because I, I just thought, oh, she's working. But I think actually what you've said about the eye contact really rings true. I mean, when we chatted to Sarah um, from My Anxious Dog, she was reporting the same thing with Bella that, um her normal anxiety triggers just aren't as acute when canny crossing and yeah it, it's it's fascinating really yeah so sort of what to do yeah and I think it is um about you sort of seeing individual dogs and what works for them and what suits them um and it's yeah with owners yes it's about having realistic expectations for the dogs as well and I think it's it's do it's being sort of quite dog led um what you were saying Louise about owners should come with an understanding of their of their dog yes absolutely but sometimes people don't necessarily completely understand you know sort of the early signs of the dog being slightly uncomfortable or they also it depends on how motivated the owner is to do the activity so sometimes if we're really motivated to do 
something, we can sometimes put our dogs in a position that we perhaps are doing for our benefit, maybe more than, than their benefits. So if they're really keen to come canny crossing, they perhaps go, oh, no, no, the dog will be fine. And actually the dog's having quite an uncomfortable experience versus the owner's actually you know, sort of wanting to do it. So it's, it's enabling them to do it, but really listening to, to the dog and giving that distance and having a really quiet group and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I think the, the other thing to also be aware of is, is where not only the, the social group themselves, but also the potential for meeting other members of the public's dogs. Because obviously you've got all the dogs that are canny crossing under control and all going in the same direction and that kind of thing. Then if you're doing it in a public place and you've got awfully dogs meeting you, uh, you know, sort of head on the other way. Uh, from my own experience of canny crossing, uh, you know, sort of awfully dogs tend to find canny crossing dogs quite exciting and they want to join in and they want to come and trip you up and, and that sort of thing. So it's just, again, being really aware from the other dogs um, point of view, um, you know, sort of what you're, who you're going to meet and what you're going to meet and times and how busy places are. And if you've got a dog there that loves to canny cross and is actually quite happy with other dogs, then almost sometimes you can use that dog as a block and go, come and meet this dog that's canny crossing because that goes first and distracts the off-lead dogs and then the, the reactive dogs can sort of sneak through and not to have to interact with the off-lead dogs. Um, so I think it's that sort of awareness as, as well. Um, is, is there anything else that we should be as trainers looking out, out at? So we know eye contact and dogs mm -hmm. heading towards us, but is there anything that we might see in a dog who is reactive that we, we're thinking, oh, that's going to escalate or, or whatever? Because I, I don't know, actually, mm -hmm. um, you know, what to look for. Yeah, sort of body language and sort of arousal and sort of stiffness is, is, is a useful thing, to, thing to, to sort of look at. So it's looking at how, you know, sort, sort of aroused the, the dog looks. And obviously that can be different with the different dogs. And again, sometimes it's really useful to look at sort of different breeds of dog because dogs are very body language orientated. And so, so they take a lot of communication from what the other dog's body is telling them. And obviously, if, for example, you compare what a husky looks like to what a spaniel looks like, they both very physically different look dogs and the husky with its pricked ears and the way that its tail sits high over its bag the fact that it's got quite an upright chest and upright legs they look very aroused even if they're completely relaxed um, whereas a spaniel is the opposite because they've got the floppy ears because they're quite floppy you know sort of busy dogs with a relaxed sort of floppy tail they tend to even when they're really aroused look quite relaxed and so actually dogs often find spaniel type dogs easier to cope with than your husky type dogs because they without even doing anything the husky looks more aroused and so other dogs kind of go oh you look you look quite aroused and the same can be with sort of terriers with terriers if you've got the pricked ears you've got the quite upright straight legs they look aroused even when they're, they're perhaps not and so it's looking for that sort of thing and in, in, a, in a reactive dog it's looking for things like if they're doing a lot of staring or if they're showing any sort of stress behaviors, if they're doing a lot of yawning or panting or lip licking, um, they're all sort of just um, sort, sort of calming signals that are sort of saying, I'm getting myself a little bit stressed, I'm trying to calm myself down um, and I'm not sure how to, to sort of deal with that. So it's looking for those kind of stress behaviors and it's almost always giving the dog the benefit of the doubt. If, if you're not sure, then it's almost give that dog more space. And then if it chooses to come, you know, sort of a bit closer again, then, then, then let it and then, you know, sort of giving it that space to to move away um i think is always the, the best thing to to do yeah, my, um, my dog sometimes crouches down i think she's got some collie in her because she mm -hmm. crouches and sometimes i don't know whether she's crouching to be a bit submissive and let the other dog pass but mm -hmm. sometimes she will kind of pounce if it comes too close so i never quite know how to read that one 
Yes. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And it, and it can depend. And yes, yeah, sort of individual dogs have different ways of sort of showing are oh, they comfortable, are they are they not comfortable, that sort of thing. And and sniffing is a really important thing. It's something I talk to my groups a, a lot about. Is and obviously when you're canny crossing, you're you're they're not stopping and, and sniffing because they're running and they're and they're working, which is fine. But equally, when you've stopped, sort of encouraging them to to sniff or allowing them to go out and and, and sort of sniff can can help. Um, and certainly sometimes dogs use sniffing to try and sort of give themselves a little. Bit bit of a space so if you find when as the dog's approaching as, as for example if a dog's approaching a group that's stopped ahead of it and it says hang on a minute I'm just gonna have a little sniff here and maybe that dog trying to say this is a distance that I'm comfortable with I want to stop now I don't want to get any closer to that dog so it's almost a, a guess seeing um sort of in, and getting owners to recognize in their dogs when the dog wants to say actually that's close enough I want to stop now or whether it wants to sort of rather than carry on and get too close to, to the dog um, so it's something that, yes, yeah, it's, it's doing a lot of sort of watching and looking at the dog's sort of body language from, from that point of view. And is it, is it a good thing for them ultimately to be in a group, in a canny cross situation, a reactive dog? Or is it, are we making their senses heightened in the long term? I'm sort of thinking about, is it some, I don't quite know how to explain that. Is it something yeah. that it's going to be good for them? I, don't, I think, I, I know what you mean. I think it depends on the individual dog. Uh, it absolutely depends on the individual dog. If you've got a dog that every time it goes to canny cross um, sessions, it's getting itself really hyped, really aroused, and it's finding that actually it's just getting more and more hyper and, and you just sort of more and more stressed, then, then actually in the long term, it may not be good for that dog. And it may be better that actually it has outlets, perhaps just canny crossing with one dog or perhaps canny crossing more on its own and then sometimes really, with really calm dogs. Whereas with some dogs, yes, absolutely. It learns that actually being around other dogs is a positive thing and actually I get to do a really fun thing and actually the other dogs don't bother me um, and actually you sort of, it's a great outlet for them to be around other dogs so I think it's very individual dog um, sort of based from, from that point of view and where they are on their journey the dog that you meet you know sort of in initially versus the dog in you know sort of 18 months two years time maybe very different creatures and it may be that actually two years down the line yes you've got a dog that can go canny crossing in social groups it may be that initial dog that you see actually that's not the right place for it at, at that point and it's so in, individual so I, I run a, a rehab group so once dogs have worked on a one-to-one -one basis with uh, my guys when they're ready for a small group scenario we introduce them to, to the rehab group um, and it's a very small group session maximum of, of six in a, in a in a group in a, in a sort of a large field um, and how long it takes for those dogs to be ready for the rehab is totally sort of personal some dogs I meet them they do one session with my guys and I go absolutely come and join the rehab group for some dogs we're working for sort of six six to twelve months before a dog is ready for a group session so it's and again it would be the same for joining a canny cross group it may be that for some dogs um you know sort of yes they can join a social group straight away just given the distances and that kind of thing or it may be that some dogs actually they're really not ready for that yet they need to do more work perhaps with a behaviorist at distances so that they can cope with that before they then come on and canny cross in a group and then they can be learning the skills of canny crossing and the joy of canny crossing on their own and then they can join the group scenario and you sort of bring the two together and one of the other useful, really useful tools, I think, when um, sort of you're considering when you're canny crossing in a group is to consider using muzzles. I think as humans, sometimes we see muzzles as quite a negative thing and, and, and sort of something that we get quite stressed about. Do we put on our dog or do we not? But actually an appropriately fitted, appropriate type of muzzle when canny crossing can be a really useful tool because, you know, you know, sort of worst case scenario, you know, sort of nothing you know, sort of bad's going to happen. The other dog can't you know, sort of nip the dog as it go, if it gets too close or anything 
like that. It also allows the dog to get used to wearing a muzzle in an environment where it's doing something positive and it's doing something something fun. So it doesn't then that muzzles mean you sort of, sort of something negative, negative things happen. And it's also a sign and a, perhaps a reminder of other people to say, actually, just give that dog a little bit of space. Um, and it's useful for members of the public, too, that if they're walking with their dog and you know, so they see a group of, of canny crossers, perhaps the one wearing the muzzle stood at the back away from the other dogs isn't the one to let your dog run up to. Perhaps, you know, sort of let one of the others. And, and you're fine, particularly with dogs who people don't expect to be you know, sort of reactive to other dogs. So I tend to, we tend to muzzle train a lot of sort of, you know, really fluffy, cute looking dogs um, or dogs of a breed that people don't expect to be because people don't have that expectation that the dog's going to be reactive to other dogs and they allow their dog to get closer. Um, and so it's a really useful thing um, to, to do. Um, yeah, no, and I think, and it's interesting, is it? Because as soon as you start mentioning muzzles to people, they, they sort of have a bad or negative mm -hmm. reaction, don't they? But, but I've learned as well that they can be a really positive thing. And it's, yeah. Absolutely. And appropriate fitting. So for Canny Cross, the best muzzles to use are the Greyhound or the Lurcher style muzzles uh, because they're loose fitting. They allow the dog to fully open their mouth and to pant properly um, and to drink um, sort of properly. Um, so the Greyhound Lurcher muzzles um, and they tend to fit. People think, oh, but my dog's not a Greyhound or a Lurcher. It's not going to fit. But actually, those muzzles fit a huge variety of dogs. I had a Spaniel who uh, used to eat things. So anything he could fit in his mouth, he would swallow. Um, so he was a danger to himself. So he used to wear a muzzle because even when he was Canny Crossing, could be in full flight through the forest if somebody dropped something on the floor he could pick it up mid-run and swallow it without breaking stride so for his own protection he used to wear a muzzle just to slow him down that little bit um, and yeah and the greyhound lurcher muzzles um sort of, sort of fit fit spaniel type dogs and, and those types of dogs um and they come in really funky colors and things now as well so they look a lot more you know sort of friendly and i think from a human point of view yes we see them as a very negative thing but actually from the dog's point of view so long as you introduce them um, to start with using sort of food rewards that the dog learns to put their head in um, and, and sort of eat uh, sort of from the muzzle and see it as a positive thing. They actually don't see it as anything any different to a collar or a harness or the canny cross harness. You know, to, to us as humans, we go, oh, they're good things. The muzzles are bad things. Actually, to a dog, all those things are weird alien things that we put on their bodies. And so long as they're introduced in a positive way and paired with positive things, then actually dogs can get just as excited at having their racing muzzle put on as they can put in their canny cross harness on. Um, and so, so, yeah, and I think it's a useful thing. And certainly with owners who worry about it, actually having that perception from the public that actually maybe your dog just needs that bit more space is a, is a positive thing to do. Um, and it's also showing that you're doing the right thing to try and keep your dog safe and to keep everybody else safe. Um, and it allows everybody to relax because they know that, OK, if the worst happened, if a dog got too close or something happened, then, you know, sort of then, then you know there's less risk of, of injury. So it allows owners to relax a little bit, too. Um, so, so I think they're, they're well worth using. Would it, I've got a question then about muzzles because yeah it, it's interesting hearing you say that actually it can help the owner relax would a dog wearing a muzzle who was already reactive would that dog feel a bit more threatened because you, you hear about kind of them being reactive when they're on a lead because they've they've not got freedom to escape anywhere would a muzzle make them more reactive or less reactive it shouldn't do either. Uh, the reason the lead makes them more reactive is because they haven't got the options of moving themselves away. Yeah. So the lead yeah. equals restriction. And therefore they know, okay, well, I can't move myself away from that situation. My only option is to make the other 
dog or the situation that I'm not happy with go away. The times that sometimes that muzzles can make dogs more reactive is if we as humans go, oh, the dog can't bite now, so I'm going to put it in a situation that I wouldn't put it in if it wasn't muzzled. And that was the other thing I was going to go on to say is that ideally I would never put a dog in a situation that you wouldn't put it in if it was muzzled, if it wasn't muzzled, sorry. Um, and so the muzzle doesn't become a reason to, to, to throw it into other situations. And that's the time where dogs can become worse when they're muzzled is because they've learned okay the muzzle goes on and scary things happen um it's a little bit like when i used to do vet desensitization things with with dogs when i worked with dogs that didn't like being at the vets i would never ideally do something to a dog that it wouldn't let me do when it wasn't wearing the muzzle when we were doing the training so if it you know sort of teach them to give paw or teach them to to be touched in certain places first then do exactly the same thing with the muzzle so they don't learn when the muzzle goes on negative things happen so it's the same with with the with the canny crossing so it's not a case that the muzzle goes on and suddenly you're thrown into the middle of a load of dogs because you can't bite them um so in theory no the dog shouldn't become worse um so sort of with with the muzzle on i mean some dogs that um potentially can learn that actually they've got the muzzle on they can't show the the, the snapping and the, and the growling behaviors and sometimes they then say okay i have to learn a, an alternative thing to do but normally the muzzle shouldn't make is it sort of any difference to what the dog is, is learning in, in my experience yeah that's we, really reassuring to hear yeah thank you i think it's also um it's it's education for everyone isn't it and and i think you know with more people getting dogs and dogs in lockdown and, and things like that i think you know there's so many more reactive or appears to be or maybe i'm just aware of it a bit more more reactive dogs around that we as dog owners have to be aware of that and all you know and canny crossing is an example so yeah it's been really really useful i, I don't have you got any more questions michelle no no, no i've yeah my head is exploding with information right now it's been really i think it's been really um interesting and and for me as a canny cross instructor um just ways of um you know organizing my group a little bit better um i think yeah watch out my local social groups because um, we'll be doing things differently um but i know and i think that is, is really important so i hope it's been really really interesting for everyone because as michelle says we've got lots of information in there and thank you hannah again for joining us on a canny cross conversations it's been a really good episode and i hope everyone else enjoys it well thank you for having me you're welcome i've really enjoyed it yeah.